Father, as we join you in your presence this morning, we come before you longing to be undone, as we just sang, longing to have burdens lifted, longings to have fears subside, longing to receive fresh mercy, longing for the new daily the new morning mercies that you promise, longing for the healing that we know you can provide. And Father, we are broken as we look at the challenges that we face in this world, as we look at our own battles with sin that's so easily entangled. Father, we need you. So Father, we come, and as we come, we worship you for who you are. We worship you for your beauty, for your grandeur, for your grace that you give to us. But we also come as a repentant people, recognizing that our standing with you is only accomplished by your grace. And yet, though you have given us new life and a new standing before you, we still wrestle with the sins of our flesh. We still fall back into the same old behaviors that deserve condemnation. But Father, you, in your grace, have made us new. So Father, we worship you and we thank you for the newness that you have given to us. And God, we come before you recognizing that in our midst, in our church, in our families, in our circles of influence. We are not all new creations, but there are some that still wrestle with those same sins without having received the grace that comes from you. So Father, I pray for conviction of sin. I pray for new life in your name and and from and through your spirit. I pray that you would convict us all of our sin, of our lack of obedience, of our lack of uh, following after you and the love you call us to. And Father, as we focus on what it means to partner together for the next generation this morning, I pray that you would enliven us, that we would not be a people characterized by despair when we look at the world and the challenges that we face but that we would be characterized by courage and great faith in knowing that you have overcome and you continue to overcome. And so, God, we we ask that you would give us a fresh vision for what it means to love you and display the love we have for you in front of the next generation, that many more would be encouraged to follow you in a greater degree of obedience. So we thank you for the cross. We thank you for Jesus' shed blood and the empty tomb and the victory you have received or you have achieved for us. And Father, now out of the new life that we have received, we come into your presence seeking to hear from your word, to be convicted, encouraged, and changed by what you have to say to us this morning. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen, and thank you for gathering with us. Uh, We continue to be in a transitional phase, and it is uh, nearing an end and a new uh, step 
And so it's good to remind us every single week that two weeks from today, we will no longer be gathering in this building for worship, but we will be in the sanctuary in our main building on August the 14th. And on that Sunday, we transition back to one service, 10.30 every Sunday morning. Uh, with that transition, it means there's going to be some change for the way we do kids' ministry on Sunday mornings as well. And so be prepared if you have kids in the kids' ministry. Uh, on that Sunday morning, we will go back to what we did uh, before we moved out here in that we would have kids in for part of the service and the kids preschool through elementary will be here with us worshiping through song for that section of the service. And right about this time every Sunday, I'll go back to where I dismiss the kids to their time of worship upstairs. So that will start back in two weeks as we're in the main building. So parents, be prepared for that change. Also in our kids ministry, we have a meeting. Rika's leading a meeting a week from today on August the 7th. After the 1030 service, with just important information, updates on some changes coming this fall within our kids' ministry. So please, if you are a volunteer, um, be, uh, put that date down. Be here for that meeting. If you have any interest in helping with kids' ministry, this would be a great starting point. So talk to Rika and say, hey, I'm not currently serving with kids. I'd love to be involved and come to the lunch and learn about how you can be involved as well. Uh, also, in the life of the church, y'all, there's just... A lot because it's uh, it, tomorrow is August and the bad news is the summer is is coming to an end. The good news is there's a lot more stuff uh, going on in church calendar, church fellowship events, things like that. And so tonight we have the First Corinthians Bible study that Jason will lead. We'd love for you to be here for that. Saturday is the first Saturday fellowship. Um, that's August the 6th, 3 to 5. It's here. It's wiffle ball and watermelon. And you say, well, is there a Bible study or anything like that? No, it's fun. It's relationships. Um, come and just get to meet new people. Uh, you can come if you're a family with young kids. You can come if you're not a family with young kids. You can just Come. Everybody's welcome. They will not force you to play wiffle ball. They may strongly encourage you to play wiffle ball, but you will not be forced to play wiffle ball. Um, but yeah, just, just come, enjoy some time with your church family. Um, and then there's back to school splashes the week after that. August the 14th is uh, going to be a joint kids and youth event. Everybody's welcome. The kids and youth are, are going to be, the times are going to be staggered so that we're, we're, um, uh, separating the times on the blow-up slides and stuff like that, but um, dinner will be provided. You can come if, you're, if you don't have kids and youth. Um, come hang out. Uh, come volunteer. We need lots of help to help run these uh, different stations and slides, that sort of thing. Uh, and then the Sunday after that on the 21st is our ice cream social and congregational meeting and just another fun event that also has a great purpose of presenting to you um, what's going on in the life of the church and updating you on uh, different ministries within uh, the ministry of the church. So lots of stuff going on. That's all right here on the uh, bulletin. Uh, and so just want to make you aware of those things and remind you uh, week to week. Now turn with me to First uh, Samuel chapter 1. We're going to talk about dedication. And I think it's a pretty simple word. We know what it means to be dedicated. So I have young children in my home. Um, I've had the joy and stress of operating as a youth soccer coach for my son Jericho's team. And within even a young age, you can start to see uh, what dedication means to a specific skill, to a specific task. 
So we, I have a daughter that plays piano. She had a um, piano rehearsal not too long ago. I've got a son that I get to coach his soccer team, so I don't just see and observe him and the way he plays. I get to see and observe the whole team. And you quickly notice the children and the parents that are most dedicated to the task at hand. And so it's in, in soccer, you can see the categories. You can see this is a kid that's here to have fun, and that's a beautiful thing. And then you can see this is a kid that is dedicated, and this is a kid that was forced to be here. <laughs> and you can just see the differences out there. And you can see how it plays out on the field. And you have certain kids that even at a young age, they want to learn the skills and they want to push themselves, and they want to learn the ball skills, and they separate themselves even at ages six, seven, and eight from the rest of the group because of their incredible dedication. And you can see it with my daughter in piano too. You can see as you go to this um, rehearsal or the um, recital, and you see 30 kids that are all sitting there, had the same teacher, had the same opportunities for instruction, but different levels of practice dedication at home. And you see the results play out very, very differently. We recognize talent has something to do with that for sure. But over time, you start to see that talent only gets you so far. But dedication really can separate a, a group of people that care deeply about soccer. The question is, how dedicated are you going to be to develop those skills you have? Or you care deeply about piano, how dedicated are you going to be to pursue the development of those skills and talents that you have? This July and August, we're going through different things that we do, different practices that we as a church have when we gather together. And one is this thing that we call child dedication, where we gather together and we have a group of parents come up on stage, and usually they're infants and they're holding infants, and, and we go through this kind of ceremony where I ask the parents some questions I ask the congregation some questions, and the parents dedicate their children to the Lord. And the question for today is, why do we do that? Why does it matter? Does the Bible tell us to do that? Does the Bible give us any sort of guiding principles for why we do that? And what does it actually mean to be dedicated in that context? Because as we say, we know what the word means, and we know the impact that it has in the development of different skills. But what I want to challenge you today, because I, I've already lost half the crowd, because I know some of you are like, well, I raised my kids, or I don't have kids, and so this is a parenting thing. I'm out of this already. You're, you're time to re-engage, okay? Because this is for all of us. The challenge I have for all of us is what it means for you, what it means for us to be dedicated to discipleship. Because, yeah, we'll talk about dedicating children. And we'll talk about what it looks like for a family to be dedicated. But we're also talking to you about what it looks like in your life for you to be dedicated to discipleship, for you to be dedicated to God. So we're going to start in 1 Samuel chapter 1, and we're going to see sort of this scriptural picture of a mother dedicating a child to God and what the circumstances are behind it, how this happens the way it does. That's our, our first picture. But then from there, we'll, we'll draw out some more scriptural implications for why we do what we do in gathering together and working with parents as they dedicate their children to God and the commitment that the parents make and the commitment that the church makes to the parents and to the children along the way. Uh, so 1 Samuel chapter 1, I'm going to skip through uh, chapter 1 a little bit in order to get us through um, kind of the main context of what is happening, and then we'll reflect on it a little bit together. Uh, 1 Samuel 1, starting in verse 1. 
There's a certain man of Ramathame Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuth, an Ephrathite. If you know what all those words mean, you get a gold star at the end of the day. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Penina. Penina had children, Hannah had no children. Stop right there. So here's the context. We've already got a dramatic context, okay? A dramatic context that we've got to figure out what we, what we do with this in the modern world. Because we, as we come to, and this gives me an opportunity to talk about how we read the Old Testament, how we talk about these Old Testament stories, and the patterns they provide for us. So a, a couple of principles. Uh, number one, the Old Testament is not a story of heroes whose patterns we follow. Number one, the Old Testament is a story about God as the central hero and his plan to bring Jesus as the hero for all humanity. And so as we read the Old Testament, one of the things that we're supposed to take away is not the heroic actions of the people that are in the Old Testament, but actually to take away kind of the opposite, that God is redeeming some kind of messed up people along the way. These people... They do great things and they act in faith, but God is the hero and they are the ones that are continually falling short in obedience. So in this story, we're going to see a husband with, with two wives, Elkanah, Penina, and Hannah. And y'all, there's some beautiful stuff about Hannah, and we're going to see some example of dedication and parenting from Hannah. There's beauty in the story of Hannah, but it doesn't actually make Hannah the hero of the story. And surely Elkanah is not the hero of the story. Because this, question, this passage brings us to the question of, well, what do we do with polygamy? Here's an example of polygamy in the Bible. Is this okay? It doesn't seem okay. It seems like the Bible talks about marriage as one man, one woman. Certainly the New Testament clarifies that. Why is this here in 1 Samuel 1? And let me just say, there's lots of things that, that are in the Bible that are being described to us but not prescribed to us. There's a description of this is who Samuel was, and this is his family setting. But never is their command, follow, follow Elkanah. Follow Elkanah and be like Elkanah. In fact, if you look at the stories of polygamy in the Old Testament, they're all pretty broken and messed up. With, with these family situations, it's, God is not commanding these families to pursue this family structure. And every time somebody pursues this family structure in the Old Testament, you see drama and brokenness. So surely this is not an example where God is telling us that polygamy is okay. This is just God writing a story into a broken situation and using two particular figures, Hannah and the child that we're about to learn about here in a minute, Samuel, for his great glory. So it's a beautiful story because of Hannah's faith and, and Hannah's faith, faith that becomes a great example and a pattern for generations of women that follow even up to this day, that so many times when we bring up this, these children to be dedicated to the Lord, we use the verse from, from Hannah in 1 Samuel chapter 1, for this child I prayed, and therefore I'm lending him back to the Lord. It's a beautiful verse, it's a beautiful story, but, but as we unpack it, go ahead and hear me, Elkanah, no hero. Hannah is a good example but not the hero of the story. The hero of the story is what God is doing in his faithfulness, okay? So we'll keep going. Verse 3. This man went up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas were priests of the Lord. 
And on the day when Hannah's, well, actually, let's, let's skip down, actually. Let's go, so let's go to verse 6, or verse 5, sorry. Uh, Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb, and her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So here's the setting for Hannah. Elkanah is the husband. Panina is the wife that has children. Hannah is the wife with no children. And, and Panina irritates and provokes Hannah about the fact that Panina has children and Hannah doesn't. There's a great rivalry there. There's dysfunction there. There's brokenness there. And then we learn about the deep personal pain that Hannah is experiencing in her longing for a child. Uh, we'll go down to verse 9. After they had eaten and drunk in, Sh- in Shiloh, Hannah rose, and Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. She vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of my life, and no razor shall ever touch his head. So again, we have to stop and pause here and say, what, to what example are we following Hannah's, or to what extent are we following Hannah's example here? Because are we supposed to make this deal with God? God, give me a child, and therefore I'll do this. But you must hold up your end of the bargain that I'm coming up with in order for you, or for me, to then act in obedience. Uh, you're not called to make a bargain with God about your children. But what Hannah's unique prayer to God does is it shows us the right perspective for every single one of us to have towards our children. Hannah, in her dedication to the Lord, and in her, dedica- her personal dedication of Hannah's got a problem, where does she turn? Does she turn to Elkanah? Does she turn to Penina? Does she turn to her own resources and scheming? No, we see the beauty in Hannah's story in that in her struggle, she turns to the Lord. She turns to the God who can actually redeem her situation. And she trusts him. And she trusts that he's going to deliver. So let's skip down a little bit more. We'll go to verse 17. There's this really weird thing that happens between verses 11 and 17. Eli, the high priest, thinks Hannah's drunk. It's a crazy story. I mean, this is, this is not Jerusalem. This is Shiloh. This is where the tabernacle is. What Before, the, it's firmly and permanently established in Jerusalem. There's a temple built. So at this point, the priests are operating out of the city of Shiloh. And Hannah goes there to pray. And Eli watches her pray and thinks, this woman is so desperate. She's so emotional. She's sitting there. Her mouth is moving, but I can't hear what she's saying. She's got to be drunk out of her mind. I've got to do something about this. When all the while, this woman was having an intimate experience with God, and her devotion was so surprising that even the priest thought she was drunk. She explains the situation, verse 17. He says, okay, go in peace, and the God of Israel, and may the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made. And she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. And the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. And then... They rose early in the morning, worshiped before the Lord. They went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. So God was faithful. 
God answered her prayer. And all of a sudden, here's this woman that was desperate for a child, and God has given her a child. And then there's this process of weaning the child. And then in verse 26, she comes back to Shiloh. And I want you to just sit here for a second and think about Eli's perspective on this. Because Eli, number one, his first interaction with this woman, Eli thought this woman was drunk. Okay? And then he's like, okay, maybe she's just exceptionally faithful. And she sends the woman home and says, may God grant you your prayer. Recognize, never in that prayer did Hannah voice to Eli, oh, by the way, if I have a son, I'm bringing him back to you. So then, after the pregnancy, after nursing the baby and weaning the baby, maybe it's two years later, Hannah shows back up. And look at this. In verse 26, she goes to Eli the high priest. Oh, my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who is standing here in your presence praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. And he, Samuel, worshiped the Lord there as, I mean, 26 and 27 there, are Hannah handing her young child to Eli the high priest. And then not long after, she, she leaves. She hands her child over and says, I prayed for this child, so high priest, here you go. Again, to what extent are we supposed to follow rigidly the example of Hannah? Not like that. You're not supposed to bring me your children. <laughs> I've got enough of my own, okay? Um, but in this context, there is a picture of the, the coming together of the spiritual leadership of the nation and the family itself. It doesn't mean that the family just turns over to the spiritual leaders the, the, the nurture and admonition of that child. This is not a direct example to follow. But there's something unique and powerful about this. And chapter 2 is Hannah's prayer of thanksgiving. Hannah prayed after releasing, after releasing her son to Eli the high priest. Hannah prayed, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. And she goes on from there. It's a beautiful prayer. It's a beautiful prayer of thanksgiving that actually, if you look at it in comparison to Luke chapter 1, becomes a little bit of an inspiration for another prayer of thanksgiving a, a few generations later. As Mary rejoices in the gift of Jesus, another young mother, another son, and Hannah is a pattern even for Mary in her worship to God as Jesus is uh, given to Mary. So it's a beautiful story. It's an inspiring story. You have a, a young mother who is struggling, a young woman who is struggling in a desire to become a mother, and then she does this brave thing of in faithfulness to God, gives her son over to the Lord. And we think then, what is it that we are supposed to take away from this story that then shapes our parenting or shapes the way we dedicate our children to God? I want to give you just a couple things there. Number one, I want you to see that the great picture of Hannah's dedication of Samuel shows us not just the act of Samuel needs to be dedicated to God, but it shows that Hannah 
was herself dedicated to God. And here's my challenge for every single one of us, parent, non-parent, that what the next generation of children in this church and children in society need from us, all of us, is to see a generation of adults that are actually, practically, really dedicated to God himself. Because we can talk about teaching, and we can talk about training, we can talk about curriculum and strategies and how you disciple a young person and how the family and the church works together, and all of that is good and practical and helpful. And the most practical thing any of us can do is to pursue God ourselves. Because kids ain't dumb. Kids know. The next generation knows the difference between an adult that is really truly pursuing Christ and growing in Christ and reoriented their lives around what the scriptures say and who God is. Kids see that and they see the opposite of that too. They see what happens when an adult says the right things, seeks to use the scripture for the child, but not apply the scripture to the adult. So guys, this is my challenge for the sake of the next generation and for the sake of obedience to God for every single one of us, that every one of us be devoted to God himself first. And if you focus on the next generation so much as to put the focus on the next generation instead of God himself, you're going to miss the point of what Hannah's doing here. What is best for Hannah's child? Not, not her. She's not the one that is being called to parent him and raise him. She is recognizing that in order for her child to have the best chance at living in obedience and a life with Christ, her responsibility is first to God and not to the child. Or she becomes the center of everything. And that impulse is understandable. It makes sense because there's great beauty there. But what Hannah is recognizing is that it is the giver, the giver of the gift that deserves worship and not the gift itself. And we do this in so many areas of our lives where we worship the gift over the giver and worshiping your child. When your child becomes an idol, that is detrimental to your faith and to the child's faith. And what, Anna, what Hannah exposes for us is that that's a great temptation, but that the right path is to recognize worship to God as primary. And then worship to God, then our, our service to our children, our parenting of our children, falls under our responsibility to worship and obey God first. So two things from the life of Hannah that we can see. Number one, Hannah was dedicated to God first herself. Long before she dedicated Samuel, she dedicated herself. And that matters. And secondly, she understood. She understood who she was worshiping. 
not the gift, but the giver of the great gift she had received. So Hannah is a great example of of child dedication. And the way it works practically, when we dedicate children to the Lord here in this church, it's a corporate celebration. We gather together to do it. We make it public. And we have parents come up here on stage, not here, there, because we're going to be back there in two weeks, right? But there, on stage, we have parents come, and they're holding their children, and I have them, that we do the repeat after me thing, okay? I ask them questions, and I ask parents, are you going to commit to raise your children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord? Are you going to commit your children to God, dedicate them to God? Are you going to dedicate them to discipleship? And then, the third question I always ask is of the church. Okay, church, you have a role in this too. Will you commit now to pray for these parents and these kids in the accomplishment of the task that the parents have just dedicated themselves to? And so that's what we're going to unpack here now in three parts. After seeing the example of Hannah and what we can see from that, we're going to unpack in three parts what it means to be dedicated to God, dedicated to discipleship, and dedication in the life of the local church. Deuteronomy 6.4 shows us what it means to be dedicated to God. One of the most important verses in all of the Old Covenant, a verse that Israel knew and memorized and repeated over and over, and you'll see why. Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. So you might be sitting there thinking, well, that's in Deuteronomy. I thought Jesus said that. You're right. Jesus did say that. Because Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And he quoted this. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And then Deuteronomy 6 goes on to say, verse 6, These words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way. And when you lie down and when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets before your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Now, Again, we look at the Old Covenant. We look at the commands of the Old Covenant. We think, how do we then apply this? Am I literally supposed to take these words of Hebrews four, or of Deuteronomy 4 and 5, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Am I supposed to not just talk about them with my kids? Am I supposed to write them on my hands? Am I supposed to put them on my eyes? Am I supposed to put them on my doorposts? There are ways that conservative Jews do apply all of those specific commands within this passage. But here's what I want you to see from this passage. Two primary commands that God himself is giving us. And when you see these two commands, it makes the whole process of family discipleship and family spiritual growth so much more simple and attainable. Okay? Because this is it. Two commands from God. Love me and talk about it. It's really that simple. The, the, The process of showing your children who God is starts first with your love for God. You love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and might. Really love God and pursue that loving relationship with God yourself as a parent, and then just talk about it as you have opportunities. This is a holistic, life-shaping pattern that's being described in 6 through 9. I don't believe God is calling each of us specifically to write these exact words on all these different 
on all these different things, our hands and our eyes and our doorposts. But I do believe what God is saying in an all-encompassing way is if you love me, you'll talk about it, and you'll talk about it a lot, and you'll share with your children and the next generation that aren't necessarily your children but are a part of a church, share with them the beauty of what God has done. So families ask all the time, Young couples will come and will say, how do we pursue Christ together as a young couple? Or couples with children, how do we pursue family devotions, family discipleship together? And there's so many different ways to do it. And, there's so many, and when there's so many different ways to do it, hear me on this, when there's so many different options and ways to do things, what human beings do is we overcomplicate it and then we get stuck somewhere. Because we just have so many different options. You're like, well, this couple really loved this devotional book, and this mom told me that this, that this Bible study was great with her kids, and these videos are awesome, and these songs are awesome, and you just you get overwhelmed with what you're supposed to do and what is the right recipe for training up your children in the way that they should go. And I want to just make it a little bit more simple here from Deuteronomy chapter 6. Love God and talk about it. And he means talk about it regularly. When you're sitting at your home, when you're walking down the road, when you're doing your daily tasks, talk about what it means to be following Christ in the context of where you are that day. And actually apply the life of Christ to your family in any and every given situation. Sometimes we do our families a disservice by always looking for the exact right recipe for family discipleship or for a Bible study to do together. And then we get this sort of analysis paralysis where you're just looking through all these different things and you don't take a step on any of them. Here's a challenge for you as parents. I believe you should read to your children, read the scriptures to your children, read the scriptures with your children. I believe that is so vitally important. I believe it's more important though more important than you reading the Bible to your children is your children to know that the Bible matters to you and that you read it on your own. Because again, kids are smart, guys. And when we teach a generation, these, uh, we're, we're going to get you in Sunday school and we're going to get you in kids ministry and we're going to do these family devotions for you so that you can learn it and then they don't see you reading the scriptures on your own. And they don't see you pursuing Christ on your own. That's going to give them a mixed message. They have every right to receive a mixed message from that. What your kids need to know from you is that you love the scriptures and you are pursuing the scriptures. You are pursuing God yourself and you are pulling them along with you. And it's okay if, if, it's, not, if it's not a structured devotional time. Those are good. You should, you should do those if that's something that works into your family structure. But if it does not, then let me tell you, what matters most is that you are engaging Scripture, you are living in relationship with Christ, and you are pulling your kids into that. Somehow, sharing with them, letting them see, letting them get up in the morning and know that when they get up in the morning, you're reading your Bible because you want to devote your day to God. Or, or separating from your kids for a little bit and say, you guys, go play. I need to spend some time in God's Word today. Those things are good for children to see because then they recognize this really matters to mom and dad. Those of, those of us that are in the room that are not currently parents, don't have young children in the household, this applies to you too. Because for, for all of us, 
What the next generation within our church and within society needs to know is that the church, Fellowship Bible Church and the church as a whole, actually believes what we say we believe with such strength that we are devoted to the words that we believe actually come straight from God. That we're all going to be pursuing these words. That we're all going to be trying to shape our lives around these words. That we will face disagreements. That we will face different strife and challenges. Even within a local church, not everybody's always going to get along. But we work through those disagreements and those divisions through Scripture. And we continue to love each other and be committed to the kingdom of Christ. That's what shapes a next generation in, in the sense of their obedience to God and gives them this sense that this really does matter, that God's kingdom really does matter because all these people that I love, these adults that I love, are showing me what it looks like in practice. First thing, first necessary ingredient in dedicating our children to God is that we are dedicated to God. Dedicated to discipleship. And the second question that I ask of, of parents is, will you commit to, be, to take the primary responsibility for bringing up your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord? I, the church is vitally important within the life of a young person. And, that, and for that reason, therefore, every one of us has an opportunity within the lives of young people in our church. But the parents hold the primary responsibility. We have to see that, and we have to celebrate that. So the, the church works with parents in the accomplishing of that task. Sometimes parents are, are tempted to outsource discipleship to the local church, to a Christian school, to some other person that's a mentor. And, and listen to me. There can be great benefit in those times, but the primary responsibility needs to fall back to the parents. There are times when church goes kind of beyond the normal role to be extra involved in the life of a young person when the parents are falling short in that role. And that's okay because we become a family to those that don't have parents that are pursuing Christ. It's a beautiful function of the church. But when you have Christian parents that bring their children into a kids' ministry or into a youth ministry, those parents still retain that responsibility, and our job is to work with you and partner with you. The other thing that we overcomplicate in this whole thing is what is discipleship? What does that mean? What are we asking you to do when we tell you, when I tell you, you have the primary responsibility for discipling your own children? Some of us don't even know what that means, so I'm going to make it really simple. Try to give a simple definition, because simple definitions are way more useful than really smart-sounding definitions. Simple definition of discipleship is just helping people trust and follow Jesus. Part of discipleship is helping that person come to faith for the first time. But the longer part of it is helping that person see what it means to love and to follow and to eventually look like. We want to be conformed to the image of Christ, the Scriptures tell us. We need to look like Christ over time. And so as you disciple your children, your primary responsibility, teach them what it means to trust Jesus, teach them what it means to follow Jesus. And we as a church want to help you with that. We want to work with you with that. Ephesians 6 says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And every parent loves that verse. That's right. Tell your kids, obey. Honor your father and mother. mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. But then verse 4, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Family discipleship looks like bringing a child up in discipline and instruction. Discipline just means the behaviors. 
What is, what is behavior that honors Christ? What, is beha- what are behaviors that look like Christ? That's what the discipline of the Lord looks like, teaching them how to follow. Instruction is teaching them what to believe about God, teaching them who God is, how he loves them, how he has died for them and saved them. That's the secret of family discipleship. Now, how does the church get involved? Parents are primary. That's, that's point two there, dedicated to discipleship. Parents are dedicated to the discipleship of their kids. But number three, dedication involves the church. Child dedication is not just a commitment from parents, but it's a, com- a commitment from the community of Fellowship Bible Church to partner with parents in all those ups and downs. And whatever local church you're a part of, it's not Fellowship Bible Church, whatever local church you're a part of, the family and church partner together. We talk about membership in a church, and that's a beautiful thing. But I need you to see that the New Testament, when the New Testament authors speak of the church, they are consistently using family language. And so often the church in the New Testament is described as the household of God, as a family. And if we see that, then we see some of the responsibilities towards family within the church and some similar things that are said to the church and to the family. So the church is committed to discipleship in the same way the family is committed to discipleship. The church, in its commitment to discipleship, eventually sends out people. Matthew 28 says that some are meant to go and make disciples. And so with parenting, we recognize, guys, this is healthy parenting. Eventually they go, right? I hope they do. Eventually, the goal of parenting is not to just have the kids there the whole time, but to develop, to send out, to go. One of the beautiful pictures of parenting in the Scripture is Psalm 127, verse 4. Psalm 127, verse 4 says, Children are like arrows in the hands of a skilled warrior. The hands of a skilled warrior know where to aim, and they know how to release And there are two opposite ways to miss the illustration of children as arrows. There's there's the person, there's the parent that, that doesn't aim arrows with intention, that ends up just focusing on on fun and relationship and opportunity without intentionality within the life of a child. And what happens is when you're not discipling your children, somebody else is. And if you're not discipling your children, then the world is discipling your children on what it means not to follow Jesus, but to follow the pattern of the world. And so therefore, the arrow illustration means that you as a parent are taking great intention, utilizing great skill to aim your child in the right direction. And so one way to get this illustration wrong is to just not aim, just release in whatever direction and let that child go whatever way they will. The other error that we miss with this illustration is um, the type of parent, and we all know him, that doesn't like to release the arrow, but likes to keep guiding that arrow. And some parents, I think if we let them, they would take that arrow and they would take it all the way to the target and try to just jam it in the target instead of releasing. But part of parenting is the act of releasing, of letting go of having so much intentionality at one stage. The skilled warrior is so intentional while the arrow is still in the bow. But once the arrow leaves the bow, the skilled warrior does not control the way that the arrow goes. And ultimately, and this is where parenting is the hardest, is that ultimately, once that arrow releases from the bow, other things can happen. And this is where there's a challenge for parents, But this is where 
we, ha- we preach the gospel of grace to parents too. Because parents, we have a responsibility to release our children in the proper direction with great intention that we are aiming them towards the path of Christ. But parents, you are not responsible for your child's salvation in the end. You are responsible for the proclamation of the gospel. You are responsible for the direction that you send them off into. You are responsible for your actions while they are within your home. But the ultimate decision that they make is a decision that they make and is between them and the Spirit of God in, that, in what happens there with their salvation. And so the hardest part of parenting is recognizing that a child has gone off trajectory, that you release them going this way, and at some point some other factor comes in and the child goes off trajectory. And this is where parenting is a great journey of faith. And parenting is a battle against the forces of this world. Back to the arrow um, imagery. Parents are skilled warriors in that arrow example. And so we as parents are skilled warriors doing battle against the forces of darkness in this world and sometimes releasing our children into the dark in great faith and in great prayers that we have sent them in the right direction but ultimately entrusting them to God because only God can save them and you can't. It's actually good news for you and for your kids that you're not the Savior, that you're not the Messiah, but God is. It is Christ who died for your child not for you. And so this is the function of the church, guys, that we as a church partner with families to send children out and to pray for those children, to support those children, and to grieve with those who grieve when those children go the other direction. But we never stop maintaining the faith and continuing to pray that God would bring that child back. But, but also... The challenge of the church, when I say the church is about partnership, some of the challenge of the church is, is really, really hard. Because when I tell you that you as a parent have the greatest responsibility for the discipleship of your own children, one of the beauties, one of the beauties of the church that can be really hard for parents is that sometimes, sometimes God has every intention of using other adults and mentors in your child's lives, in your children's lives, in stages in which he's going to use somebody else other than you. And that's okay. It's okay if you reach a stage with your child where they're not coming to you for advice, but they're going to somebody else for advice as long as you have trained them and helped them and you have been involved enough and you have loved God enough to surround your family with the right kind of people. It's okay when, some, when a child says, Mom, I'm going to talk to this person about this. And maybe, maybe the beauty of the church is that every child has the opportunity to have multiple adults in their lives speaking the truth of the gospel, moving them in the same direction, and partnering for the sake of the gospel. This morning, four o'clock in the morning, Jess and I are gathered in our home, kids asleep, and we're witnessing a baptism service of, of, of I wasn't supposed to cry, of, of a young man who has been entrusted to us from the other side of the world, these parents sent a 16-year-old kid over to us as a family, to us as a church. And he messages us and he says, I'm getting baptized. Here's the link. So what are we doing? We're up at 4 o'clock in the morning watching Emmanuel get baptized because it's a beautiful picture 
of partnership. Hear me. You won't have to send your 16-year-old away. I'm not asking you to do that. But some of you may be called to do that. Because parenting is ultimately about releasing. And we as a church are ultimately all, all responsible, all called to the next generation. And so what are, what are each of us going to do to celebrate the next generation to send the next generation out in the right direction. Let me tell you where it starts when I talk next steps. It starts with dedicating yourself. What a generation of young people in this church and in this society need is for you to be dedicated to the cause of Christ and the kingdom of God yourself. Paul, Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ we have a generation of young people that need better examples to follow. Because the examples that they're seeing, the loud ones out in society, they're not good ones. But we need some quiet, faithful, beautiful examples that represent Christ, and that's something all of us can do. Dedicate yourself. Dedicate your family to actually be involved in a church, even a church that is messy. And we are. We own that. Churches get messy, people get messy, relationships get messy. But when you dedicate your family to the cause of Christ, it means dedicating in partnership with a local church. And when we see this, dedicating ourselves, dedicating our families, and dedication to a partnership in the gospel, I believe we'll see great things. I'm going to ask the band to come up and they're going to lead us in another song. And I'm simply going to say... The example of Hannah is so beautiful because of her own faith for sure. But as I told you, Hannah's not the hero of the story. And Samuel's not the hero of the story. And it's so cool that there's such a direct line from 1 Samuel 1 to Luke 1. Where there's a mother celebrating the birth of a child. In 1 Samuel 1, we see you are the God of my salvation, the horn of my salvation. And Hannah doesn't even recognize the extent to which she is anticipating another mother many generations later who is celebrating the God of salvation truly coming, not just to the nation of Israel, but to all peoples. And maybe what we all need when we talk about dedicating ourselves and dedicating children is we all need a little bit more gospel energy to see the beauty of the whole story. That when Elkanah can't be a hero and when Hannah's a limited hero and Samuel's a limited hero and Eli misses the boat so many times in the story that Christ is coming as the ultimate hero to redeem us to himself and to call us out into his kingdom. So let's stand, we'll worship and celebrate. And I encourage you to reflect, where is God calling you deeper in dedication? What gift of grace is Jesus my Redeemer? There is no more for heaven now to give. My joy, my righteousness and freedom, my steadfast love, my deep and boundless peace. To this I own, my hope is only Jesus.
Father, we confess that the task in front of us is too great for us. The task of parenting, the task of discipleship, the task of walking faithfully in a fallen world. And so we proclaim, yet not I, but through Christ in me. Christ in us, the hope of glory. Christ who has redeemed us from the curse of the law. Christ who has obeyed the law in every aspect so that we could then, by His Spirit, walk in obedience. Father, we pray that You would be with us, that You would be the one sending us out by Your Spirit so that the world would not see us and our dedication, but that the world would see Christ in all His beauty. So, Father, as we receive the blessing that comes from you, remind us that we stand only in the power of Christ Jesus. Amen. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you, be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Go in peace.